The Gran Cedillo School of Business and Management at Pepperdine University proudly presents the Dean's Executive Leadership Series. This podcast invites top business practitioners and thought leaders to share their view on the real world of business. Hello, my name is Rick Gibson. I'm the Associate Vice President for Public Affairs here at Pepperdine University, and I'm joined today by Dr. Linda Livingstone, who's the Dean of the Grazadillo School of Business and Management. Good morning, Linda. Good morning. It's good to be here today, Rick. Recently, uh, we have uh, had on campus William George, who's the professor of Harvard Business School and the former chairman and CEO of Medtronics. And he was here for the Dean's Executive Leadership Series. Just briefly, tell us a little bit about that series. This is a series we've been doing for about three years now where where we bring in leading business uh, thinkers, speakers, uh, individuals who are CEOs of companies, and they share their wisdom and experience with our audience. And this year you've had uh, a pretty impressive lineup. Just remind us of some of the people we've had so far. We started the year back in the fall with Patricia Sellers, who's editor-at-large of Fortune Magazine, and then we followed that up with Brian Franz, who's in charge of daytime TV for ABC, and Dennis Tito was our most recent guest, who not only founded Wilshire Associates, but also flew in space with the cosmonauts. It was quite fascinating. And tell me, how the students uh, responded to these, uh, to these guests? Well, we've had a full house of attendance at all of our uh, speakers this year, and we've had tremendous response to that. They've been very engaged, asked lots of great questions, and we've had lots of good feedback following each of the speakers. Yeah, I'm sure it's been a been a rich experience. Well, tell us a little bit about William George and uh, what uh, what interested you in bringing him to Pepperdine. I think what really got us interested in bringing uh, Mr. George to campus was the two books that he's written. He wrote one a couple of years ago called Authentic Leadership, and more recently just came out with a book called True North, Discover Your Authentic Leadership. And he really talks a lot about what it means to be a genuine and authentic leader, and we believe that that ties very directly to our mission in the business school of developing value-centered leaders. So we couldn't think of a better thing to do than to bring him as a part of the Dean's Executive Leadership Series. Well, very good. Well, let me invite our listeners to uh, just sit back and listen to this interview with William George, uh, professor of Harvard Business School and the former chairman and CEO of Medtronics Incorporated. Today we have Bill George with us, a former CEO of Medtronics and author of several books. And so we're thrilled to have you with us, Bill, for this podcast and also for our Dean's Executive Leadership Series today. Well, it's exciting to be with you, Linda. Thank you so much. Well, I just want to take a few minutes as we uh, do this podcast to talk a bit about uh, your, your books that you've written, your views on leadership. I think those are going to be things that are going to be very interesting to our audience uh, for the business school. So you were a CEO of Medtronics for... Uh, 10 years, I believe, and served on their board as well. And since then, since leaving those roles, you have really devoted your uh, efforts and really your energy to developing leaders and thinking about what it means to be what you call an authentic leader. Talk a bit about that transition from sort of the corporate setting to this real passion for developing leaders and and how that evolved for you. Well, I set a 10-year limit on how long I would be CEO of Medtronic. I had no contract and told the board they can fire me any time, but if I last, 10 years will be the max, and then I'll have success that they will approve and move on, which happened in 2001. So I'm in my 50s and had a year as chair of the board, but I said, what am I going to do now? So I went off to Switzerland to see if I liked teaching, could learn how to teach, and worked at two institutions there, Swiss Federal Polytechnic in Lausanne, and uh, and IMD, the business school, and found I love teaching, particularly MBAs. I just love that work. 
as well as a lot of exec ed, but mostly the MBAs is where my real heart was. And came back and did a brief period at Yale, but my alma mater is Harvard, and Dean Kim Clark asked me to come there. And one of the things he said, Bill, is you wrote your first book, Authentic Leadership, with lots of great stories from your own experience. The next book you have to write from the experience of others. So I've just completed and uh, brought out uh, in March of 2007 a new book called True North. And it's really how you discover your authentic leadership, how you become an authentic leader. And it's hopefully an answer to the loss of trust we've had in our leaders in the business community since the fall of Enron. And I want to talk more about both of those books and kind of your views on authentic leadership. But something you said, as you mentioned your uh, uh, time at Medtronics, that you didn't have a contract and you told the board they could fire you at any point if they weren't happy. Uh, that's actually a very unusual relationship, given all we've read in the press recently about CEOs and their compensation, these amazing packages they have as they leave. What's your views on that, and where do you see that going? I mean, clearly that's um, caused a lot of negativity uh, from the public in terms of their view of CEOs and the corporate world. Well, there's no question CEO compensation spiraled out of control in the last 10 years, but it's particularly egregious when you see people being paid hundreds of millions of dollars for failing. And that comes about because boards go out looking for some corporate savior to come in, like the Board of Home Depot did, and giving that person a guaranteed contract regardless of how they perform. In my view, CEOs should be the most at risk, not the least. And it is interesting serving on the boards of Exxon and Goldman Sachs, two of the largest companies, General Electric, one of the world's largest companies. None of these CEOs, I don't serve on the board, but none of these CEOs have contracts. It's mostly when they go out to hire someone from the outside. So I think the great failing of boards of directors is in putting good succession processes in place and developing leaders, not just at the top, but throughout the organization. How do you think organizations should go about doing that succession planning? What Are there some particular keys you found through your years of experience and in talking to all of these leaders around the world that you think are particularly important and valuable to companies to think about in that succession planning process? Well, it really starts with your philosophy of leadership. If you think that the as many the media seems to and many people do, that the leader on top is 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 the by far the most important thing and everyone else just follows that person's direction, you're most likely not to have good succession throughout the company. I believe just exactly the opposite. I think it's all about leaders throughout the organization, even those who have no direct reports, being empowered to lead and the leaders at or near the top shaping the context, the shared values, and the shared mission of the organization. And when you do that, then you put in place succession processes to give young leaders a chance to perform in smaller jobs so when they get the larger jobs, they'll be ready to step up to them. And so my sense is that you're a big proponent of internal succession into CEO positions as being uh, the more preferred way to do it than hired guns from the outside. Absolutely. I think the risk of bringing someone from the outside is very high. It's not fair to the internal people. I remember we, I was running a case with about 1,000 people in the room with Lou Gerstner, uh, and Lou said, and asked the response to the same question you asked me, he said, any board who has to go outside has failed. Absolutely. In fact, they should not have to go outside for their top team. And he was the poster child for going outside. But, of course, his successor, Sam Pomisano at IBM, came from the inside. And I think you'll find the companies that sustain their leadership decade after decade have really good succession processes. You talked about knowing your philosophy of leadership, and, and you have written a book called Authentic Leaders and then followed that up with the, the book that just came out on True North. 
how do you define an authentic leader? What is that and how is that different than maybe a traditional view of leadership that we often think about uh, in corporations? Well, the more traditional view is find somebody who's charismatic, who has a great style, has a great image. Uh, I think this is nonsense. I, I think it's counterproductive, the kind of leaders we need. I think we need leaders with character, with uh, integrity, not image, and with substance, not style. And if you're really going to focus on charisma, you should go into the media and be in that business. But CEOs are not cut out to be charismatic in the classic sense of the word. I think they are cut out, though, to be very empowering leaders of other people. And I think organizations understand that, develop those kind of leaders from the outset. But that then means you have leaders who are true to what they believe in, that can be themselves. They know their values, and they practice those values every day, especially under pressure. They build long-term connected relationships, and they recognize they lead with their hearts, not just with their heads. And by that, I mean they lead with compassion, empathy, uh, and courage. And those are really important. Those are all qualities of the heart, but that's what makes a great leader. It's not just being the smartest person in the room. We have a, a set of values in the business school that we talk about because our mission is to develop value-centered leaders. And we talk about uh, developing leaders with integrity, uh, compassion, courage, and good stewards. And Wonderful. so I loved you. You said most of those words in, in the description. So that, that makes me feel good about what we're trying to do and the things that we're working on. As you think about authentic leaders, I mean, clearly, particularly in True North, we actually include some exercises in that book for people to reflect on and think about in terms of helping move closer to being an authentic leader. So clearly, my uh, my sense is from what I've read of your work that you believe that people can develop towards being an authentic leader and that that is something that, uh, that people can put effort and energy into. So talk a bit about what individuals can do to become more like an authentic leader and what companies can do to help people do that. Well, first of all, there's no question you can become an authentic leader. It's not hard. You don't have to have a certain set of characteristics that are imposed on you. You just have to be yourself. But then you do have to develop yourself, and it's hard work. I compare it to being an athlete, going to the World Cup or the, uh, uh, the Tour de France, or being a cellist who's going to play in Carnegie Hall. You wouldn't consider doing that unless you practice your art every day, no matter how talented you were. You have to practice, practice, practice. Leadership is the same thing. You need to start early and have those leadership experience. And through that, you gain an awareness of who you are. And so self-awareness becomes critical. And sometimes you gain that through feedback, critical feedback, uh, constructive feedback. You also test your values under pressure. Now, it's real easy to say what your values are uh, when you're not under pressure and even practice them when things are going well. It's under pressure you find out when you're faced with losing what you've had if you have to stay true to your values. You find out what they are, and that's the real test. And I think it's really important to have those early when the stakes aren't so high before you get entrusted with huge responsibilities and you have the lives of a lot of people you're responsible for. Well, the third area is balancing your motivations. Uh, I think it's important leaders understand what motivates them. Of course, they're motivated by the extrinsic uh, esteem of other people, money, title, power, all those kind of things, recognition. But if that's all we are, then we're really at risk of uh, becoming glory seekers. And I think it's very important that you understand your intrinsic motivations. All right, do you want to make a difference in the world? Do you want to build a great organization? Do you want to help other people to, through your products, through your services? Do you want to mentor people? Do you want to help people develop? What are your intrinsic motivations? Do you want to become uh, the person that you always dreamed of being? And I think in addition to that, one of the real risks of leaders is the loneliness factor. 
And I think the only way to overcome that is to have a really strong support team around you who can be totally honest and tell you exactly, you know, give you good feedback, help you through difficult times. And that support team you'll find will be there for you through thick and thin. If you have a family problem, if you if you lose your job, if you get divorced, whatever, you have you have people there with you and you know you can count on them. And then finally, I think leadership is very much about leading an integrated life. You mentioned stewardship. I think it's important we get out and serve our communities, it, that we serve other people, and, and that you have a fullness of life so it's not just all work. I was talking to one young man the other day who works 120 hours a week. Now, how can he possibly have a life? He's being, having his employers extracting that kind of hours for him. Yes, we all work hard, and I think we're working harder than ever, but I think we need to understand that there's more to life in terms of personal life, family life, and community life. But if you don't start developing those things until you're in your 40s, it's too late. And by that time, you would have sold the rest of your life down the river, and you won't be as good a leader. And then finally, I think, and most important, when you do all the things, is can understand the purpose of your leadership that comes from your life story, from the tough times you face, the crucibles, and you find your passion in that life story. And that's what gives you the courage and the power to lead. As Andrea Jung, who's CEO of Avon, that has 5.5 million people working for her, she said, if people can't see that I have a passion for this company and for its mission, which is the empowerment of women, then I can't be an authentic leader. I can't lead these people. So I've got to have that passion. And then the rest of it's easy. Empowering other people is easy when you can be that authentic leader. You had another great uh, story from Andrea Jung in in your book, True North, uh, where she had just won an award as the boss of the year. And she was trying to get her son ready for school, I think, so that she could get off to get this award and speak to 3,000 people. And she was telling her son to hurry up. And he said, Mom, you are not the boss in here. You're not my boss here. And she said, just sort of ground you and makes you sort of recognize uh, who you really are. And I can relate to that very much, having a 10-year-old daughter who likes to remind me that I'm not the dean at home. Uh, So I loved that story, but I I thought it was a wonderful example of uh, the roles other people play in our lives to help keep us grounded in the right things that are important. You talked about um, people's leadership really comes out of their life story, uh, which I think is a really wonderful and interesting concept. I love stories, and I love to use stories when I speak at things because I think they illustrate things well and, and make important points. Talk a bit about your story. I mean, uh, you said the first book was more about you, and the second book was more about examples of others, but what is it out of your life story that you think is sort of the most compelling for impacting who you have become as a leader? Well, my life, I think of as a series of crucibles. Uh, uh, my father never felt he was successful, and I'm the only child of older parents, and he wanted me to carry out and achieve the things in leadership he never did. So as a three-, four-, five-year-old boy, I was hearing, don't be like your father's son, and, you know, you could be CEO of a really important company. And they even named the companies, IBM, Coca-Cola, Procter & Gamble. Not so easy, but it was a heavy trip. But then I thought I was going to be a leader, and I remember – uh, never being selected for captain of sports teams or leadership roles and running for the president of senior class in high school, losing two to one, going off to college, losing six straight elections. And finally, I was so devastated by this that a group of upperclassmen sat me down and said, Bill, there's a reason for this. You're just uh, so ambitious that you don't really have time for other people and no one wants to follow you. No one wants to work with you, even though you have great gifts and qualities. And so that was easy to understand in my head, but in my heart, it took a while to fully uh, inculcate or incorporate that in my uh, in my behaviors. 
But after that, things went really well. But I did have in my mid-20s, when seemingly everything was going well, two tragedies in my life. One, my mother died uh, uh, very suddenly. Uh, she had had cancer, but she died of a heart attack when I was 24. And I felt very much alone in the world because I was very, very close to my mother. 18 months later, I'm engaged to be married, looking forward to the day. Three weeks to the day before I'm supposed to be married, my fiancé drops dead of a malignant brain tumor. Just suddenly, no warning, no explanation. Some headaches, but nothing before that. And I was totally devastated, and it really caused me to become very introspective and think about what do I want to do with life, and how long do you have on Earth, and what are you going to do in the short time we all have on Earth, and how can we link up and make a difference uh, in the lives of others. Then things went well. I married my wife, Penny, had two wonderful sons, and now I'm in my mid-40s getting ready to be CEO of Honeywell. One day I'm driving home. I look myself in the mirror, and I am just miserable. And why can I be miserable on a beautiful day like today with a wonderful family? I was miserable because I was chasing so hard at becoming CEO that I was changing in ways I didn't like about myself. And, and so I finally had to confront that, and that's when talked to my wife, and I talked to my men's group and made the call to join Medtronic, even though it was a much smaller company, had a wonderful mission. And I realized that it was really a choice at that point in time between chasing the ego of becoming CEO of a really big company and uh, following my heart and making a difference in the lives of others. And the thing I'm proudest about Medtronic is that we expanded from 300,000 patients we served to about 8 million today. And that's really a fulfilling thing when you can restore that number of people to new life and full life every year. So that was kind of how I came through my crucible. So you can see that kind of thread wandering through of, of overcoming your father and then have to go beyond that, and, but find your passion in serving other people. You talked about your wife and the men's group as being important. And in your definition or in your description of authentic leadership, you talk about the support team and people around you. Talk a little bit more about how for you personally those were so significantly important and and how you even went about sort of particularly with the men's group, developing those kinds of relationships over time where you had such a trusted group of people. Our men's group started meeting in the mid-70s. We've been meeting every Wednesday morning ever since for once a week, for an hour and a quarter. But these are a group of guys. I can sit and tell anything. They tell anything to me. And there's a trust level, confidentiality level, trust level. I even tried to replicate it in my Harvard course very, very successfully. But that trust, which has built up over time, is invaluable. I'll give you an example. In uh, the mid-'90s, my wife, uh, midlife, mid-career, right after getting her doctor, was diagnosed with breast cancer. And she had a mastectomy. And I was scared, but I was in denial because of the early experiences I had so I was able to sit down my men's group and really share all that. I felt their support, their love, their care, and that was extremely important to me and to her. We had also had a couples group of four couples that were there for us. Uh, we were all there together when she had her surgery and in the difficult days that followed. And that kind of support in your life is invaluable. And frankly, you know, you really didn't need to know in advance, build those relationships in advance to know that who will be there for you and who will you be there for. Because at the end of the day, I think those are the things that really matter. Not the money you make, but the relationships you build. And interesting that those were lifelong relationships in many ways for many, many years to build that kind of rapport. In talking about Medtronic, some of the things you said really resonate with some of what we try to emphasize in the school. It was really this blending of you know, a very successful business with a business purpose that adds great value to society. 
Um, and we really try as we work with our students to to get them to think about not just how they create value for their business, but how they create value for society more broadly, either through their business or through what they do in their lives more particular outside of the business context. Talk a little bit more about your views on that and how you were able to come to a place where that really kind of meshed together well for you. Well, for starters, I'm not sure you can create value for your company long term if you don't create value for society. And it's not just about companies like an Amgen or a Medtronic or a Novartis that save lives. It's about Target stores, where I served on the board for 12 years. It creates great values for people and fashion-forward merchandise in a fun, clean, well-lit store. Uh, that's value. And if they don't do that, they'll wind up like Kmart, bankrupt and out of business. And so I think it's really important that we not think that there's a trade-off between creating value for your company and creating value for society. I think it's all one and the same thing. And that's the way the only real lasting value, sustainable value, is created. So when I sat down with the founder of Medtronic and talked about the mission of restoring people to full life and health, I said, wow, this is where I wanted to vote myself. And I remember when I walked in the door of Medtronic as a full-time employee, I felt like I was coming home. It was I felt like coming home to a place I'd never been before. I could be myself. I was appreciated for what I could contribute and who I was and didn't have to put on airs or uh, follow someone else's direction, but I could be who I was. And that, I think, is really crucial to anyone. Uh, can you be who you are? You have had wonderful corporate experience, and now you're in an academic setting. Um, and, of course, we have a, a large MBA program here and do lots of business education. Based on kind of your life experience and now your experience in the academic world, what can we as business schools, particularly graduate business programs and schools, be doing more effectively in, in what we're doing to prepare students for leadership roles where they're really going to be authentic leaders and even with our alumni after they're gone from our regular programs? Well, I think by far the most important thing is grounding people who graduate from Pepperdine in their values, in what's important in life and how they want to serve and thinking all the way ahead to the end of their life, what do they want to leave behind? Uh, you, when you talk to alumni of business schools, none of them will say, you know, gee, I wish I'd learned more specific skills, or I wish I could run the options pricing model, a discounted cash flow model better, because five, ten years after you get out of school, it's all obsolete anyway. But what they do remember are the organizational behavior, the development, the leadership development courses, the things that talk openly about values. And I found a lot of institutions are very reticent to do that. That's why I'm so pleased at Pepperdine. That's on the table and explicit. Because many institutions, it's the faculty that doesn't want to do it because they feel like, well, there's no established value base here or we don't, you know, different people believe different things. Well, one student asked me, are you going to teach us values? And I said, no, we're not, I'm not going to teach you values. But we're going to, you're going to think about your values and what values you believe in. That's what's really important. And you're going to share in a dialogue with other people about the values you hold dear so that when you come to the test, you will have always thought that through. And so you can make the call. I remember one of my students called and said, you know, Bill, I've been there four months in this company. It's an outstanding student. He said, my boss wants him to move the numbers around, which meant fudge the numbers. And he said, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to quit. I said, Daniel, don't quit. Go back to him and tell him what you're prepared to do, but you're not prepared to compromise your values. And he stayed, and it was kind of rocky for a while for him, but it seems to be working out now. But he stayed true. If he'd compromised that on a little things at the outset, you know, 20 years from now, he'd be compromising on the big things. 
How have the students that you've taught uh, in MBA programs responded to uh, this approach to teaching leadership and, and the really strong emphasis on the values piece of that? They're hungry for it. They're absolutely hungry for it. Now, sometimes some of the employers don't fully appreciate it. They want somebody to come in and run the numbers. They want an analyst. But they're just using you. You know what I mean? You can get 1,000 people to run the numbers. You don't have to get, you know, even an MBA to do that. And I think there's too much emphasis on that and not enough emphasis on what kind of person you're going to be for the long term. And are you finding the right kind of fit with the organization and where you want to be? And I think it's really important that people coming out of school or even people who have been out 10 or 20 years think about what motivates them, what are they good at, and find a place where they can use their best abilities and be highly motivated. It's what I call the sweet spot or motivated capabilities. And when you find that place, you're going to be happy and fulfilled and you're going to do much better work. If you're not, you're always going against the grain, you know. And so you shouldn't sacrifice your life for the first 10, 15 years just to make a lot of money in order to, uh, uh, to satisfy someone else but not do what you love. In your book, True North, you have wonderful examples. You interviewed, I think, 125 uh, individuals that you consider authentic leaders to kind of develop the framework for that book. Are there one or two examples from that that really stood out for you as people that had really found that sort of sweet spot in their life? Clearly, you think they all did or they probably wouldn't have made the book. But are there any examples that were particularly compelling for you um, in terms of what you're trying to convey about the sense of true north and the sense of authentic leadership? Well, there are many. Uh, one I would give you is Dan Vassell, the CEO of Novartis, a big Swiss pharmaceutical, now global pharmaceutical company. He grew up in a poor family in Switzerland. As a young boy, he had asthma and had to go to the mountains for two summers. At eight, he was put in a sanatorium for a whole year with tuberculosis and meningitis and his parents never visited him. He was scared. He used to scream when they do the lumbar punctures. And one day, a physician came and explained this whole procedure of lumbar punctures to him. And, and he, he thought they were trying to kill him. And when he explained it, he realized that it was very different. And the physician said to him, is there anything I can do to help you? He said, yes, just hold my hand. Don't hold me down like an animal. And it didn't hurt. And that compassionate physician, as Dan calls him, became the role model of what he wanted to become in his life. And he went through terrible things as a child. Sister died, his father died, mother moved away, he was a rebel. But you know, he later in his 20s was able to frame this and see he wanted to become that physician. And then at the end of his residency at the University of Zurich, he decided he wanted to take his leadership and, and expand across many, many people, not just one patient at a time. And that's why he took on a life-saving company. He said, you know, it's fabulous to be part of a company that impacts so many lives. Another person that impacted a lot of lives that found her calling was Ann Mulcahy, who never thought she was going to be CEO of Xerox, and she'd been passed over. But when the company got in real trouble, guess who they called, to, who they went to? They went to Ann, and she had no financial background, and she had to get somebody from the Treasurer's Office to tutor because the bankruptcy experts are saying, you should declare bankruptcy because you got $18 billion in debt. She said, I'm not going to do it. We want to restore this company to its, you know, to its former greatness. And see, she was true to what she believed in, what she grew up as a little girl going to Marymount College and just being true to her values. Today, she stayed true to that. She restored the company, and the support she has in that company is awesome. And she has that because she stayed true in the darkest of hours, and that's the real test. She could have sold out easily, made a lot of money, given a contract, walked away. No, that wasn't interesting to her. What was interesting to her is saving this company and bringing people together around that shared mission and still staying true to the company's values that they historically believed in. 
And she had been in Xerox for oh, she'd been a long time, years. so she was very bought into the company and had a great love for the company. Somebody from the outside, as we talked about earlier, would have probably had a very different perspective on the value of saving the company. The cynics would say, because she was so bought and she couldn't make the hard decisions. She did make a lot of hard decisions. She preserved R&D, and, and, and she had to make some cuts, but not in the sales organization, not in the customer base. And so she, she was true. But you know what really brought Anne through that? And she would say this to you if you're sitting here is 25 years of building relationships. And people knew that Ann bled for the company, was true to it, and they really were willing to support her through the darkest hour. And she was extremely empowering to them to get people to step up and lead in their own way. We need to probably wrap up our discussion here in our po- podcast. This has been wonderful and, uh, and, and very insightful and certainly very consistent with uh, what we're trying to accomplish at Pepperdine. But I do have one question I want to leave with, uh, leave with and conclude with. Um, you, you mentioned this earlier as people really thinking about what their legacy is and um, what they want their life to be remembered for in terms of making a difference in the world. And so uh, on a personal level, as you look on your life now and as you think about your legacy and what kind of difference uh, you want people to think about you having left in the world, what is that for you? You've done lots of different interesting things, but I would really be interested in our audience hearing what that legacy or difference that you're making is for you. Well, I certainly felt for years it was Medtronic, but having doing the work I'm doing now and my hope for True North is it'll be widely read by people uh, and have an impact on leadership. And I'm very passionate about changing leadership in this country and getting away from what I call the takers and the, that are out for themselves to take a lot of money out of the system. And you mentioned the word stewards to get more people who see themselves as stewards, what I call givers who are in leadership to give to others. And if we could change it just a little bit, I would I would die a ha- very happy person because I think it's so important that we develop a new generation that does it differently than many in my generation did and be real stewards of the leadership responsibilities they've been given, these awesome responsibilities. Because at the end of the day, if you're, uh, it, you're on your deathbed, what are you going to say you left the world? And I think one of the most important things to remember is when you die, the only thing you can take with you is what you leave behind. Very wonderful and insightful comments uh, for our audience today. Thank you so much, Bill, for being here. It's been a pleasure visiting with you, and uh, we appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you. It's a delight to be at Pepperdine. Thank you. Well, Linda, that was a fascinating interview uh, with uh, William George. Um, Tell us who's next in the series. Yeah, we really enjoyed having Mr. George with us, and we're really looking forward to our final speaker of the year, who is Kawana Brown. She's Managing Partner and Chief Operating Officer for Magic Johnson Enterprises. So it will be a fascinating evening on May 22nd, as well as a wonderful podcast coming up. Well, that's terrific. Well, let me thank our listeners for tuning in to this edition of the Dean's Executive Leadership Series podcast. One thing I've learned is you can either let things happen or make things happen. That's why I'm running my own full-time business and earning my MBA from Pepperdine University. Because an MBA from a top-ranking school like Pepperdine only adds to my credibility as well as my capabilities. I've also made all these great business contacts through Pepperdine University's extensive student and alumni network. Now, my company and I aren't just surviving, we're thriving. Are you ready to really make things happen and join an alumni network of over 30,000 professionals? 
Then call 1-800-933-3333 for more information about either our morning or evening MBA programs for working professionals. That's 1-800-933-3333. Pepperdine University's prestigious Grazio Dio School of Business and Management, where the real world of business is mastered. <laughs> 